Welcome to the Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey. Here's your host, Mark Seelis. It has been a long time since I published my last podcast. It hasn't been due to a lack of content as I have a few chapters waiting to see the light, but I have been wondering for quite many weeks which would be the right topic to begin this upcoming challenging year. A few years ago, I decided to start this podcast channel as a personal project to explore topics I'm interested in and share a moment with those who have similar interests. Now and then, I received messages from some of you sharing your insights or just saying thanks for some of the content covered in the chapters. This is a hobby for me, more linked to my passion than trying to do a business out of it. This is why I appreciate a lot your words of encouragement and it makes me feel that when I'm recording a chapter and talking alone to this microphone that I have in front of me, I am not alone, but sharing each moment with you. I'm recording today's opening from an isolated cottage in Iceland. I'm here for work reasons, and it is very important that I comply with the local COVID prevention rules. This means six days of quarantine and two COVID tests to make sure that everything is okay. This morning, I completed my quarantine after a second test with a negative result. To celebrate, I went for a walk around the cottage. During the hike, I encountered a frozen river, and I stopped for a few minutes to enjoy the beauty of the moment. It came to me that in difficult times, like the ones that we live in, many people are experiencing the same as the river. All the river's power, beauty and potential were dormant, waiting for the sun to rise again later in time to warm up its frozen surface for then continuing the journey. Meanwhile, it awaits peacefully and mindfully. For those facing a struggle, remember, you don't fail because things don't turn up as you want it, but when you stop trying. Keep on dreaming. Keep on trying. Keep on being dormant if needed, waiting for your time to shine and flow like a crystal blue river again. And because of that moment, I decided to start the year sharing my own experience with the struggle together with all of you. Last year, I was interviewed by William Roden on his podcast channel Agile Amped. He called the chapter from chasing empty goals to a life of fulfillment. I think that the title captures the essence of the meaning I see behind the suffering most of us experience and how we can gain priceless insights from the difficult moments we go through. With William's permission, I am reproducing that interview where I shared my personal stories with the struggle and how that helped me identify what matters the most in my life. We also explore the impact on those who go after what I call empty goals and who are so focused on their professions that they lose touch with their true vision. That's what happened to me and it may have happened to some of you at some point in life. I enjoyed a lot the conversation with William and I hope that you enjoy it too. This is Mark Siles speaking today from our mobile studios in Iceland. Welcome back to our show. Welcome to another edition of Agile Amped. I'm your host, William Rowden. Today, my guest is Mark Siles. Mark is originally from Spain and has been living in Finland for the last 18 years. A former senior executive, investor, and disruptive thinker, Mark now works as an executive coach and agile strategy facilitator. He dedicates his passion and energy to enable companies to accelerate their strategic growth, leveraging agile frameworks to create a collective learning culture. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. It's great to be with you. Yes, it's great. Uh, I see our previous conversation on Coaching Talks podcast was released uh, Sunday. That's right, just a few days ago, and I have been quite pleased to see the high number of downloads in just a few days. So I'll tell you more about it later. But the feedback I received so far has been very good, especially on the value and clarity that it has added to 
many of the listeners about the topic of agile enterprise and other topics that we discuss during that uh, during that interview. So thank you for your time as well. Great, I'm I'm pleased. Uh, I'm also pleased to be able to switch roles and interview you <laughs> uh, because of your personal story of transformation. Um, and mm -hmm. it seems to me that you discovered over the course of your life and your near burnout experience some of the kinds of things, kinds of ways of working that agilists advocate. So I wanted to talk about that today. You wrote an article mm -hmm. called What I Learned from a Near Burnout Experience. Will you tell our listeners a little about what led to that? Uh, to the article or to the experience? <laughs> the experience <I> <laughs> because in, in a way both things uh, link to each other in a way the article was also kind of a good way to go through cell therapy to say somehow to open up on the, what happened to me because i noticed that every time i was talking to to customers and i was sharing the the story in some of my seminars people were were connecting to it and i was hearing more and more often that you know hey mark you know the same thing has happened to me or something very similar has happened to me. And I thought that I was kind of a broken human being, that there was something wrong with me. So I noticed that suddenly that story was touching a lot of people. So I decided to open up about it and, and write an article in this Swedish magazine. And then suddenly I noticed that it was very therapeutical also for myself to open up. So it was a win-win situation. I think that one of the core things, and of course, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly what, uh, what happened and what drove me to that situation. But I think that... Being a perfectionist and, uh, and an overachiever through my whole life didn't help that much. Now, somehow I have learned to utilize those characteristics, first of all, accept them, and then utilize them to get the best out of them in, the, in, in, a, in a proper way. But at that stage, when I wasn't mature enough, I think they didn't play uh, that a good role uh, in my life. But you know, taking that into consideration, when I think about uh, my attitude and the ways, uh, the things I was expecting to get out of life, I would narrow it down to make, you know, I could say three main drivers or three main reasons. The first one, I think I was going uh, after empty goals. That was uh, one main issue. And sometimes I, to explain how it feels to go after empty goals, I explained the, the story of the dog. You know, you throw a, a tennis ball to a dog and that dog is going to run like crazy and insane to, uh, to catch the tennis ball. And then he's going to come back and want to play the game, game, the, the game again. Now and then the dog uh, misses the ball. You know, I've noticed that the dog is going to go after the ball and comes back, but the dog is still happy. You don't see that dog, uh, the dog being uh, miserable because he didn't uh, catch the ball. Uh, but for me, it wasn't like that. To say like <laughs> to put it in that way, I didn't have the wisdom of a dog. So I really thought that inside the tennis ball, there was my self worth, there was my happiness, there was my uh, my feeling of rewards. So what happened to me is that I was running like crazy to catch those uh, tennis balls, my goals, and every time I was catching them, I felt empty. And then I thought to myself, okay, it must be that I set up the wrong goal. And then I was setting uh, even a bigger goal because I thought that when I achieve that one, then I'm going to feel fulfilled. I'm going to feel happy. Uh, and it never happened. So I was always uh, after the, the the empty goals without realizing that the dog, that the aim it is not to catch the ball. The aim is to experience happiness by itself as the dog it is when he's playing the game. So uh, that was one of my main issues of going after empty, empty goals. Uh, then yeah, you describe in the article your uh, lack of purpose, right? And um, I also hear in that uh, another thing you mentioned there is about being too perfectionistic as well. So it seems like those were contributors to um, uh, dissatisfaction in your life. Big time, especially when the, that passion is uh, taken from the wrong angle. And what I say wrong angle is because I notice now that the main reason that I was after it was to dress up the ego, the ego side. So I wasn't doing it because of my true passion or my true self. I was trying to create that uh, that wrong image. Actually, that it was that was not who I was. That uh, that image of the overachiever, the and, uh, the image of the successful person. So I was too worried. It's like a tea bag. In somehow, like you know, I was too worried to have a very good and beautiful bag, and I didn't worry enough about the quality of the tea inside. I forgot about the quality of the tea. I was worried too much about about the outside, so uh, that passion was addressed totally towards the wrong, the wrong dimension, like to create this ego, which is kind of like part of the of the false self. And of course, the ego, as yeah, as you pointed out now, it has a lack of purpose. The only purpose of the ego is just to build itself, nothing else, and therefore it's empty. 
you know it's uh, and that's something that of course now looking backward is very easy to to see and uh, and realize but back then it was just impossible you know i felt myself into this kind of lack of purpose life and you know i saw that there was no not much uh, inside it and now it's easy to see why that was uh, that was the main thing and then of course that drives me to the last thing which is with those two uh, the, with those two other premises about going after empty goals and uh, just worrying too much about the ego it's obvious that then i lost track of my priorities the true priorities and the connection with my true self so then suddenly i was juggling with too many things to try to build and protect that uh, that image and none of them were important i was for- forgetting about uh, my, uh, my my daughter back then was 2 years old i was forgetting about her i was forgetting about myself you know i gained weight extremely fast so fast that i almost went into diabetes so it was really really scary and uh, the situation that i had even once i lost sight for a few seconds when i was driving because of my sugar levels i mean it was really really scary and then at work as well you know it was really hard to even prioritize and decide what to do which task should i should i be taking care of it was really a really uh, hard spot uh, hard spot to be uh, so it's you know those those would be i would say the main three things that drove me to that uh, to that situation you know having this uh, empty goals uh, try, worry too much about uh, how i look and, and the ego side not how i look physically but how i look professionally towards the outside and then not understanding my true priorities and of course you know the lack of purpose builds uh, builds on it so uh, it's uh... did you find yourself taking things too personally as well oh yeah you know yes <laughs> you're totally right in that stage because anything that threatens that uh was threatening that image i was trying to build i was reacting aggressively on that uh, on that spot so i i don't think that also the good i was doing around me or with people around me was that uh was that positive at that at that stage so absolutely like taking things personal and as well worrying too much about uh, protecting that image that didn't exist so yes that's kind of a feeling i was having at that uh at that stage and i would even say this constant how would describe it is this constant anxious feeling to be in the wrong place at the wrong time all the time so it's kind of a weird thing to explain, but you know, it's just having this uh, uh, this need to distract myself all the time because I wasn't sure about what I had to do. And then when somebody was even trying to help at the beginning, and I, I was not realizing about what I uh, what I was going through. So yes, taking those uh, those critics very personal, even if they were trying to help me at that stage. So it was a it was mm, a good waking yeah. up call later on when I realized about everything else that was that was happening, and then I had the chance to to recover from it. Yeah, I can see if you got into a state where you're taking things personally, even the offer of help could uh, just sort of add to the continued um, anxiety and and negative reaction. What did it take for you to find your values and reestablish your identity as a human being? That's an extremely good question. And uh, even nowadays, after so many years, uh, having recovered and uh, being in a much better place, uh, I think a lot about what you just asked. And, uh, and I have to track it down. It always goes down to the same to the same thing. You know, I can start to rationalize and argue what I did and everything else, but it always comes down to the image of my daughter. You know, uh, uh, two things happened. One, I was playing with her one day, and after 30 seconds, I just, you know, I couldn't move anymore. And then I thought to myself, like, you know, Jesus, if now with 30 years old, I'm like this, what's going to happen when I grow up? Which kind of a father am I going to be to my daughter? And what made the trick, I think it was very powerful. It was one day somebody asked me to uh, to do one exercise from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven, uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, I think it's called. And they uh, recommend me to write down my own funeral speech. So like imagine that I was dead. Uh, so I went through the whole visualization exercise. Uh, I saw myself in the coffin, and then I had to write down a speech uh, that three people would say in the funeral. And one of them was a, was a friend, and then somebody from work, and then a family member. And then uh, as a family member, I picked my daughter, and then I started to to write down what I think or what I wanted her to say. And even now remembering about that exercise, you know, I'm just <laughs> almost going down in tears because it just came very clear to me. Like it hit me like a, 
like a train at, at 500 miles per hour. Uh, and just made me realize going through that exercise, it was very harsh. And I've done it a few times afterwards to remind me because that I've gone through it. It doesn't mean that I, uh, I'm okay. And that's it. Yes, I'm okay. But now and then, you know, I find myself going back to the same trap. So it's good to remind ourselves uh, about why we do certain things and why that vision is so important. So that image of that um, that father and how I want to be remembered, it really did a huge thing. And then right away after, uh, a lot of things started to happen. You know, uh, I divorced in a very friendly way uh, with my ex-wife. So, you know, we are still very good friends and keeping in a good dialogue. Uh, I redid my my professional career as well, going, going into something that was bringing more purpose to what I was doing. I started also to redo my friendships. You know, I had a lot of work uh, after that uh, decision was taken, but that... Uh, that one exercise and then the experience of playing with her, with her brought a lot of uh, carried with it a lot of uh, purpose and i believe that that's one of the main reasons why i went through the whole transformation and put myself into good space because without what i realized is that without a deep good purpose a good reason a good vision that is going that goes beyond the rational mind that is more powerful than yourself without that vision you know, usually you just find a lot of excuses why to quit. So that has been one of the core things for me to find that vision that it's it overpowers me. I cannot find any reason why not to become that father I want to become for my for my daughter. And not just that, but also the kind of partner I am for my actual girlfriend or the kind of son I want to become for my parents. So that brings me that deeper purpose that uh, brings more and more energy when I feel like to quit and throw the towel. I think that's... Uh, how I came around and then as well how I use that vision to even nowadays to remind me why uh, I do what I'm doing. Yeah, this, this is what captivates me about your story. You had gotten into a point of sort of narrow vision with your work and, and not really distinguishing what it was that you truly valued. And that led to a near burnout that sort of focused on this event with your daughter where, where mm. she brought to your attention what, what the impact was on your relationships. And then this exercise of casting your mind forward to what you really want your life to look like and what you want people to say when it's all over, uh, what it was that you actually accomplished. Uh, I see this as a catalyst for a transformation to reorder your priorities and re reorient your thinking. Uh, and I, I find that a very compelling story. Uh, yeah, that's extremely, extremely true. And that's why also working with visions and teams, linking this to agile topic, it's so important. Because when you have a true vision and a true purpose, then suddenly there is the big reason why you want to do something. And that's something you cannot really, you know, fight against. Uh, and it's one of the hardest things to to become conscious about. It is not something that you wake up one day and you understand your vision, you understand your purpose. It needs constant work also because when we mature and we grow up, it also changes. The vision, you know, when we are 20, when we are 30, when we are 40 and so on, it is not the same. And that's the beautiful thing about personal growth and agile is that it helps and it facilitates this constant renovation, constant growth not just within the working environments, but it also allows that growth for human beings. That's why I embrace and, uh, and love so much this type of more human approaches. And that's why what, maybe one of the things I was trapped into, the corporate life that was ignoring that human side. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I think as well, why at the end, even if I had a very successful career, what you could be considered uh, you know, from the professional CV point of view, uh, being a financial director at the age of 28 and then uh, director for a, for a direct-to-consumer division at age of 32, et cetera, et cetera. I noticed that that was not really what was bringing uh, for me success. Success was something else more linked to the human growth as well. And that's what I also, my, my, my passion at the moment and what took me to stop that career and I started my own company so I could focus more in this topic. So still focus on business growth, but via human growth. Because then I noticed with my own experience that is the only way to make those things sustainable by bring growth to people and teams and then companies grow. And at the end of the day, we are all humans. We are all going through the same troubles. I was going to say a word starting with S, <laughs> but or we go through the same troubles. We all go through the same hurdles or similar ones. 
even if sometimes we feel that we are lonely and nobody else is feeling like that. But the truth is that at the end of the day, you know, most of us go through that insecurities, uh, challenges with the self-esteem or self-worth, the imposter syndrome, even if our track record is really good. You know, we all go through very similar challenges. So by opening up and also focusing on, uh, on human growth, I think is one of the best elements that Agile brings to our tables as well. But we need to be open up to uh to those uh you know to those journeys as well once i said before it's not something that you wake up in the morning it's like having a six six pack on your stomach just because you know you have a gym card it's not going to do it you really have to go to the gym and exercise mm -hmm. every single day if you want a six pack and this is something for me very similar you know you need to keep on a, uh, practicing personal growth and then the tools that agile and other methods give you it's just a tool but at the end of the day how you open your mind towards that transformation process will make the big difference. Yeah, it seems like you widened your perspective beyond just what you could make money at and what you could do well to include things that you love and things that the world needs. Um, I'm reminded of the model I've seen with the overlapping Venn diagrams of the Ikigai philosophy, where you try to mm -hmm. find not just what you can do well and make money at, but also what you love and what the world needs. But uh, I noticed in your article that you say there's dangers even in seeking your ikigai. Um, what what, oh, what yeah. tr troubles do you see there? <laughs> well, you know, one of the interesting things is that, uh, you know, even the, one of the books that talks about the ikigai, one of the most famous books is written by, by Catalan, a couple of Catalan guys, uh, I think it was Spanish, anyway, a uh, book from, uh, from Spain. Uh, and one of the things where it became so popular is that, you know, I've been working a lot in Japan and China, and uh, especially in Japan, I was talking about this and I, I always saw them very confused that, you know, I thought that in Europe, it's so clear. And then in Japan, they were so confused about this concept. So then I started to do my own research. And it's a Japanese word. So you would expect them to understand what you were talking about. Exactly. So I'm like, hmm, maybe this, you know, what is actually behind it? So I did my own research. I spent two years in Japan in a project. So I use extra time to, you know, to do my own uh, visits to different, uh, the, uh, different uh, places and talk to people and then also do my readings. And I found out something very interesting. First of all, yes, it's extremely important to find uh, the common spot among the, the different dimensions you have been mentioning. But then also there is a hidden trick. And as research points out that especially mission-focused people that are in that in those vectors are statistically the ones that have the highest risk to end up in, in burnout. Why? Because all that passion and all that drive uh, sometimes make us, uh, makes us a, bit a bit blind about our priorities. You were talking before about priorities as well. So it seems that the uh, people that really find their ikigai or they have this uh, mission-focused passion into what they do, they used to be the ones that are struggling the most on having that inner balance between the life and, and, and work and how much time, how many hours they put into their work because they're so passionate about it. That that's also one of the main drivers. And uh, I don't recall exactly the stats that I found uh, in the research. They were done by the Harvard, Harvard Business Review magazine, I recall, but they were very high. You know, extremely, extremely high, the the danger of uh, of those type of profiles, which just indicates, and I find myself in that in the dimension, being a mission focused uh, person, is become more aware about how we manage our priorities, uh, and the key here has been not to learn uh, to manage or to prioritize our our tasks and our calendars, but I'm going to go back two steps and then say, you know, the secret is to understand which are our priorities and put them in our agenda and there's no you know and they are non-negotiable so if you say that uh, your family is important then you know take your agenda take your calendar and put them there and lock those times and make sure that those times are respected a dinner with your partner make sure your uh, your priorities are actually in your schedule and don't get pushed to the edges of a busy day filled with things that aren't really priority Exactly, because those are the ones that, you know, when I, when I ask people, they are the first ones to get cancelled. And then when I'm asking them, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> it's, you know, now you mentioned it, it's kind of interesting I think now when I reflect on the people I'm coaching is that usually when I ask them to make a list of the most important things in their life and they do it, and then I ask them, which are the first things you postpone when you are busy? They are the same things. <laughs> so the things which are most important for them are the first ones to be cancelled and postponed. And that simple exercise for many people is like, uh, wait a minute. What am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? You know, it's really that meeting about which color 
the coffee cup should have at the office that important so i need to postpone you know a dinner with i've, I've heard that you know one of my clients that had this kind of meeting and then he postponed a dinner with uh, uh, with his partner because of that you know it just becomes a ridiculous situation ridiculous situations but you need to consciously work with that one so that's why i believe that the ikigai is awesome when you can find that sweet spot when i believe that they find myself at the moment i feel extremely lucky because of that and i've been working hard to get what i am today but you know i feel lucky to be able to uh, have those three things on place but at the same time it requires constant uh, constant effort and so have people around you in my case i surrounded myself with people that remind me when i when i lose track because it happens i'm so passionate about what i'm doing but it's good that then even my own daughter will tell me like you know hey daddy now it's time to you know <laughs> it's time to plug off or my girlfriend or even my ex-wife or my parents or my brother so also to learn to listen to the signs and you know become a bit wiser on uh, how you invest your energy and your time becomes very very relevant so that's why i would believe that be careful with the ikigai after you find it because it also can drive to the not just because i say so but also trust the research and trust the data so both things right Right. Well, I can see how highly driven people could end up even in mission-driven organizations as well as the large corporations and still have the same challenges with burnout. Uh, and I, I like your suggestion that we make sure that if we say something is a priority, that it ends up somewhere in the schedule. Um, as an Agilist, I'm a fan of prioritizing and um, some things end up you know, at the bottom of the priority list and they don't get done. I also hear in a, your example, a little bit of setting boundaries or um, asserting a, autonomy where you say, uh, no, this meeting about the color of the coffee cups really isn't as important as other things I need to do, even if people are asking me to do it, right? So sort right, of a, right. establishing your own boundaries and values that um, you're going to uh, respect. That's totally right. And especially when you think about maybe the last element that is very, very important that uh, we keep in mind is the ecology of what we do. Uh, and when I say the ecology, and that's maybe for me the, 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 deepest, uh, the deepest thing that also came to me thanks to uh, one story that my grandma was telling to me when I was a kid. It's how what we do impacts to others around us. Because when we go after achieving our goals, also we need to think about how will that impact people around me, my friends, my family, society. It doesn't mean that we need to focus on making other people happy. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that keep in mind that maybe if you get what you want, it doesn't mean that it's exactly what you need or what, what will benefit your ecosystem around you. So keep, keep that in mind. Uh, the one thing that also added a lot of value, I mean, I love all my grandpas, uh, to death, both from my uh, mother and my father's side. And I have like very beautiful stories from all of them. Uh, maybe the one I remember the most is that uh, my grandma was telling always when she was uh, when she was young, she was captured during the civil war to, uh, because she was helping uh, in a hospital. She was going to hospitals and she was helping them to uh, take care of, uh, you know, if there was some clothes that were broken or any kind of errands, she was running around. So there were a group of women trying to help uh, soldiers during the civil war, but one day she was in the wrong hospital, meaning that you know the, the the Franco troops came, took her, and put her to jail with the bad luck that she was condemned to be shot down and be killed. So uh, that was it. You know, my, wow. my grandma was at the you know the jail about to be shut down, uh, but something very beautiful happened during the jail time. You know, she decided that because she's going to die anyway she will dedicate her last days to her true passion, which was theater and writing poems. And then she was doing it by herself wow. in her cell. You know, she was uh, uh, just speaking out loud some poems and then doing some theater plays until the point that suddenly some of the guards are starting to come and ask her like, you know, hey, I have this uh, girl I want to, you know, to, to win over. Can you write down a love poem for her, please? So you are like, Okay, sure. So with all her compassion towards those people that were about to kill her, she started to write down those poems with, you know, expecting nothing in exchange. And she started to help, you know, one guard, two guards, then suddenly other cellmates started to ask help to her to write down some more letters to send to their families, families because, you know, some people could not write down back then. And she started to do all those things. And then, lo and behold, one, once per year, uh, Franco, for her, for his birthday, was forgiving somebody from 
from each jail, and he was allowing that choice to be made by the by the jail responsibles. And that year, my grandma was chosen to be the Chose one that, yeah, that uh, that was released. And for me, that's I've, I've always taken that story in my heart because that reminds me about the importance to put our passion to serve others without expecting anything in exchange. And that's one of the most beautiful things. Also, going through my uh, near burnout experience and the learning from my ancestors, what I can take to the job I do nowadays and anybody that anybody that experiments with Agile as well, that when you put those tools and your passion in service of others, then there's a perfect way to address that energy and the dedication and make sure that the ego, even if it's there, it's put on a good uh, on a good function. Well, that's an inspiring story from your ancestry there. Uh, and, and I like how you're talking about, on the one hand, you're, you're turning away from you know, seeking just appearances, right? Seeking to look successful in the eyes of other people, but you're still widening your perspective to consider the impact of what you're doing on those around you. And so I, I feel, I hear a strong theme of relatedness in what you're saying that uh, we're considering what it is that we're doing in the world and how it's affecting mm -hmm. each of the people that we're interacting with, which reminds me of your exercise around the funeral, because you're thinking about each of the people that you are, um, that, that will have some impact from the life that you live. That's right, William. And you said it before a bit as well about uh, uh, when you focus uh, on the, this is not just to focus on the priorities, but also to understand how that fits with uh, what the world needs at the moment. When you were referring about the Ikigai, I think that you know that is one of the what the one of the core elements. Also, understanding how you take care of yourself, so that recovery part. You know, it's not just, you know, you, when you hear about recovery, sometimes it's about, you know, take care of the good sleep, which is extremely important. So, you know, 100% take care of the good sleep. But recovery for me as well is like, how do you invest those moments during the day? You know, how do you make sure that every, I don't know, every 90 minutes, every two hours, you have those 10, 15 minutes of high quality time, regardless of what it is. It could be time spent by yourself meditating in the toilet that I usually do sometimes. <laughs> put some music and, you know, when I cannot be anywhere else, so I may go to the toilet or call a friend just to ask, how are you doing out of the blue? That's one of my favorite things to do, just to call randomly somebody that I haven't been talking for ages and just, you know, I'm just calling. What do you want? Like nothing. How are you doing? And then, you know, you can see this positive energy out of those five, six minutes. So there's a lot of things, but it's, you know, that you can do and we can do, but it's important to also fit recovery as a priority in our agenda, regardless what that means. It's not just a sleep, but anything else that could bring that a small piece of joy, not just to ourselves, also to others. Because at the end of the day, we are more in sync with ourselves, also going to help other people in meetings. I've noticed as well, now and then when I'm facilitating some sessions, if somebody comes with an extremely good mood or very bad mood, it's going to affect as well the rest of the people in the room. You may have noticed the same in some of your, uh, of your workshop with your clients. So when you help as a facilitator to channel that energy and you can put yourself in that state of... Uh, is that in that state of mind of being in a good place, it's also interesting to see what happens to others. If sometimes it's just through a slow breathing, by looking calm, by looking uh, that you are experiencing harmony within you. So uh, it sounds all very esoterical and, <laughs> and kind of philosophical, but it does work. And science has also proven that those things play a big role in also how effective meetings are. Yeah, I think there's a very practical impact of these kinds of things. Uh, a number of my colleagues will run from meeting to meeting. And so they go through an entire day where they're late to every meeting and they're stressed and rushed and maybe they don't eat well and maybe they didn't um, get any get enough rest and that sort of thing. And I try to schedule meetings that are instead of a half hour, it's 25 minutes. Instead of an hour, it's 50 minutes. And there's a little bit of break in there and uh, a break for something like meditation. Uh, our office actually has meditation rooms um and you know in my home office um i uh, can uh, just take a break to breathe uh, right here at my desk so i haven't had to run to the toilet to do my meditation but um i, I do like the idea of taking uh, constant breaks and even uh, as you say not constant but taking regular breaks i guess is the word i mean uh and mm -hmm. even the, even what you say to call a friend uh what i make up when i hear that is that you are 
watching your energy across the day. And so there may be some things that are draining and maybe they may be negatively impacting your attitude and what you might go to in the next meeting. And so you're finding something that will give you energy and it will lift your mood. Uh, and so calling a friend to me fits that category there of um, husbanding not just your time, but your energy. That's so relevant. You said two very big things here. The first one is especially now thinking about the COVID times and how much time we spend in front of video calls is the 50 minute rule. What I call is that yes, book for 60 minutes meetings, but only have them, you know, you only use 50 minutes. So use that rule for the event just because otherwise you're going to end up, you know, eight hours sitting and even eating in front of the TV of the computer screen and there will be zero time for recovery. So having those 50 minutes rule, you know, I love that. And I recommend that always as well to my clients is that, yes, book one hour, but spend 50 minutes. And the 10 minutes, don't do anything extra. Just spend those 10 minutes for yourself. Uh, the second thing that you said about uh, the energy, I think that's why self-awareness, it's so it's so important. You know, there's many methods out there uh, that allow you to, to profile yourself, to understand better how you manage your energy. There is the more scientific-based ones, like a big, big five workplace, or others based in calcium theories like this or MBTI. But whatever you use, I think that the main takeaway and the main element is like to get in contact with what you said now is understanding that we all have different preferences about how we spend energy or how we use energy or how we recover that energy. Some people, they are more, they have more extroverted energy or more introverted energy. Some people, they like to uh, spend time by themselves to recover. Some other people, they may want to interact with others, whatever that is. Sometimes we get exhausted by working too long time alone, just gathering data and details. Some other people have seen them excited after 10 hours of Excel. And they're more than just that, you know, other people, they get <laughs> totally, you know, Not drained. Me. So, you know, so we are different, but we only gain consciousness of those things you are saying now about how we manage our energy if we really spend time working with self-awareness. And that's why here the figure of a coach, even myself, I have my own coach because it doesn't mean that when you're a coach, it's easy to coach yourself. I think that's, that's undoable. You know, even the best tennis players, football players, you name it, they have a coach, even if they're the best in the world, because they notice that it, having a sparring partner helps you becoming stronger. So bring that self-awareness back to your life, because it's uh, one of the best ways to become a better self-manager on that energy dimension you were just referring to. Yeah, so you're talking about increasing your self-awareness as a way of helping to manage your energy, learning what gives you energy and what takes away energy. Uh, and you mentioned a bunch of profiles, coaching, I like. I, I imagine we could get feedback from others just during the day as well as, as, as a way of uh, yeah. learning about uh, how we're showing up in various meetings or how we're reacting, um, whether we look bored or, or interested um, as we go about what we're doing. I'm learning to decode feedback. That's one of the core things because what I find extremely hilarious, to be honest, William, is that at age of 30, 40, 50, 60, I keep on seeing in company after company trainings about trainings about how to give feedback. And those things for me like are basic that they should be taught to us in the school, how to give and receive feedback, or what I like to call feed forward instead of feedback. But anyway, it's just a matter of concept. But sometimes because we are not all very advanced to give feedback to people, I think what what we what we can all learn is like to help people to decode what they're trying to tell us. So when somebody comes uh, to give us feedback, I think it's very smart, instead of assuming to understand what they're trying to tell us, become good at making questions and indicating and then active listening. So uh, if you come to me and say, hey, Mark, I've seen you, I've seen you uh, stressed during the last days. So it's easy for me to go on defensive mode, right? But instead, what about if I could ask you, okay, William, you know, what have you seen that makes you believe that uh, I've been stressed? What have you noticed that I have not noticed? Uh, which moments did you see? Uh, what did you notice? Uh, what do you think that actually happened to me? So to try to bring more depthness into that initial feedback, which is very shallow. So also learning to listen by creating those questions when you get feedback, I think it's a very good opportunity to practice what you are saying. Is that, okay, listen to what people are telling you, bring awareness via feedback but also learn to integrate uh, indicate and don't assume that you understand what people are trying to tell you because we can end up on the on the defensive mode 
trying to justify why we are like that and then missing the opportunity to learn and then see which, usually I ask to myself, which one thing I can change, just one baby step so I can get myself into a better spot. And that type of feedback you were pointing at, it's very, has a lot of value, but also we need to learn to get that value. No, somebody's giving us an orange, but we need to learn to get the juice out of the orange. So uh, it's not automatically like, out. That's how I would put I like, it. I like that analogy. It isn't immediately eatable, but there's some something you can do to to make it consumable. And um, in your case, you're asking asking questions, good questions too. I like that question. What did you notice that made you think I was stressed? Um, because that's an opportunity to increase you know, my own self awareness if I'm asking that question by seeing seeing myself through someone else's eyes, right? And maybe I don't notice how um stressed or clenched or uptight or whatever i'm coming across and that's good information to raise my self-awareness and help me think about where my energy is going and my time and how i'm interacting in the moment it's a good opportunity to also build trust in your teams because when you do that you're kind of making yourself vulnerable you're saying to the other person that i'm willing to open up i'm willing to also like uh, be transparent with you so I, I believe that in the background when you do that a few times and everybody practices that in the team you also build more trust and the more trust the more psych psychological safety you have in the team and the more psychological safety the easier it will be to develop agile teams so sometimes it is that easy just to learn to make questions and learn to listen and then give that space for for transparency and uh, yeah, become vulnerable in front of each other. I think that it's just a beautiful experience when you see teams practicing those simple but very powerful tools. Yeah, I noticed you have a passion for psychological safety and how it impacts the the performance of the team. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I think it's it just became obvious not because of my personal experience, but also to see after working, I've been working many years now as well, giving retreats to executives. And then you notice that most of the staff, one of the things that we do, we hardwire them at work before they come to the retreat. So we notice how they are spending. It's a, it's a, it's a device by a Finnish company like, that traces you and then sees how you're spending your, your energy and the quality of your stress and your recovery. And then it becomes very obvious that for people that are in, a, in environments that are not psychologically safe, their they're, uh, they're, uh, autonomous nervous system or the parasympathetic part of that system doesn't function at all. So your body doesn't have time to recover. So it's all the time waiting for the fight or flight response. So constant release of uh, cortisol, you know, uh, it goes into chronic stress. So it has a lot of damage to our body, not just on the on the short term, because the short term, it's a there, you know, there is a reason why the stress is there. So it's a good thing. But then when that comes into a chronic state, it also impairs the capacity that we have to make good decisions. It impairs a part of our brain that, uh, you know, it's called the prefrontal cortex. So we don't have access to the part of the brain to make a smarter decisions. It also damages our immune system. So we can get sick faster and we recover slowlier. So the impacts on that, it's, it's tremendous. And even if it sounds a very nice thing to say let's create a you know psychological safety around us the truth is that is the way that our body works naturally by definition having these small minutes of threats that's how our ancestors were were programmed our, our brains are still hardwired in that way have those few minutes of tension so you have all that cortisol the dopamine injected in the body but after that one just go back to your safe environment go back to the place that you know that everybody's looking for each other's back where you can be yourself, but if that place is not there, then the body reacts accordingly to try to protect and defend itself. And that it damages uh, beyond what we think it does at, at work. So this is not just about being stressed or not being stressed. This is about also how that affects our, uh, our kids and people around us. It's been proven by Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Blackburn. She got a Nobel Prize in 2007 that this kind of situations damages our DNA by having shorter telomeres and the shorter oh, wow. telomeres they have yeah, yeah. It, you know it really damages and this can go to our next generations even people around us can get you know influenced by that one what also she noticed is that actually when we put ourselves in a better state of mind and i'm summarizing her book so if somebody's interested just check her ted talk or her book uh also those telomeres can grow up so she was that's why she got the Nobel prize because she proved that the telomeres can uh, can grow back and, and make our our uh, our chromosomes uh, much stronger so psychological safety has so many 
deep dimensions that, uh, and they're all scientific. You know, that's what I like about this. This, this is not about my opinion. It's about a true, true proven fact. And uh, that's why I'm so passionate about it because I notice the benefits that they carry, not just for my, for myself, but I see that how this is the core element for any team growth, not just because Google says it, that they predict a lot and because, you know, teams have better performance and because the results will be better is because there is a true human impact on environments that the teams feels psychologically safe. That's why to learn the true active listening, learn to give true feedback, not just feedback that you criticize somebody else for, you know, saying that, oh, she's an incompetent or he's useless. That's not feedback. That's going to damage somebody. But when a team becomes comfortable with those elements and then they they practice psychological safety, the benefits, you know, it's just all over. So um, sometimes I get confused why we don't practice this more often and not just at work also at home. You know, I have uh, this one case of a client that when we hardwired him uh, with this uh, with this tool from uh, uh, Wednesday till Friday, he was totally fine. But then on Saturday, all the data was extremely bad. And then during the call, like, you know, during the, the coaching session, then he opened up and he said, actually at work, he's totally fine. But then when he goes at home, situation the situation was not was not good with his wife mm. and the whole family situation. There was a lot of tension, and that came right away reflected also. And for him, it was like shocking to see actually my body reacts so strongly to it. So right away, like you know, the funny thing, he took that report home. And actually, they discussed with the wife, and uh, it may seem innocent discussion, but thanks to that, they went into therapy, and the whole situation was uh, taken to a very good end. But you know, just mentioning that to say that sometimes psychological safety. Or most of the times, or always, uh, I'll be that extreme. It's not just at work. It happens naturally to our brain everywhere where we are, with our friends, with our family, um, with our hobbies. That's why we like so much to practice hobbies, not just because they are linked to what we enjoy doing, but also because we feel safe. We feel that we belong in the same group that we feel psychologically safe. We understand that when we are there, we feel protected. That's why it feels so good to go to practice certain hobbies because you are surrounded with people alike that share values, share principles, share vision, and that's why it feels good. Then the rest is going to be like a more doing something that you like, but feeling good about it has a lot to do with that side as well of psychological safety. What I like about this research is it's showing that there really isn't a hard boundary between work and life. We, we talk about work-life balance as though there are two separate things that we just kind of allocate each their appropriate amount of time, but you're, you're showing with these studies that there's a significant impact uh, on our bodies and on our moods uh, of how we are arranging our entire lives. Uh, I also like the qualitative and quantitative uh, mixture there. I can imagine that maybe some of the executives that come into your sessions are a little less uh, enamored with the uh, subjective aspects of things, the touchy-feely, the soft aspects mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. And so you're wiring them up to a scientific device that's measuring the stress in their bodies and pointing to hard data to say that this is the impact on your body function and your mental function as you go through your day. Um, I, I like that uh, approach because it's a, a different kind of feedback that, and maybe people will listen to different kinds of feedback. The beautiful thing about this, William, is that when you are so aware about those things, when you become that deeply aware, you can plan for success. Because when you understand which, you know, just kind of summarizing what we have said so far is when you understand your priorities, when you understand how your self-worth and self-esteem is not dependent on what you want to achieve, when you understand how to manage that uh, that balance of just, you know, trying to manage one life, uh, then it becomes very easy to start to plan for success, meaning that uh, through the day, when you look at your agenda, then it will, it's going to become much more clear which task you should put where. Because you do understand what will require more energy out of you. You will you will understand what will bring momentum and, uh, and joy to your day. You will understand which other task will help you keeping the momentum. You will understand which task will need more time to work so you will plan them as a project, not as a task. So when you have that awareness in your mind, you're going to start to strategize about how to deal with your priorities. And I do that a lot. Like at the beginning of the week, I will, I will put those tasks that will create momentum which means easy to execute and create high impact, high value in my day. Then on Wednesday, usually I put uh, easy to do, but low impact because after the momentum is created, those tasks will allow me just to maintain the momentum. So something that is easy to do and so on. 
things that will require more dedication, I put them on Tuesday and Thursday to work them as a project. So I work in a smaller, in a smaller bit, in a smaller chunk, using agile principles to chop down. So you know, when you bring that uh, element of clarity, understanding, and awareness, then it's very easy to plan for success. That's what I call mm. in the book working with the discipline of success. Still not finished. I'm working with the whole book, but that's the principle. Like when you become that uh, deeply aware about what you are doing and how it's affecting you and others, then you can extremely plan for success. Which doesn't mean that you will get what you want. <laughs> so it just means that you will be able to experience a successful life because you define it yourself. You know, you don't allow that others define success for you. So I think that's one of the core elements to bring that final pleasant experience of life to gain that deep awareness and then. Applying the gel principles we have been talking also in the other in the other podcast. So I think they are both interconnected. Well, those are great tips for managing your energy across the week for your priorities. And also I think a great summary of our conversation today. So Mark, I appreciate your time with me today. Likewise, William, it's been great to talk to you, as usually. And, uh, you know, nothing else than it's been great meeting you. I'm looking forward also to have more interactions. You know, I would like to have you back as a guest in my in my podcast. I think that, you know, you have a lot of knowledge and wisdom and value to add to the audience. And as well, like, you know, just before we close, I'd like to say that why I think it's so easy to talk to you, I think because we connect not just, at least how I feel, not just, not just on the professional dimension, but I think as well, like we share some deeper insights about how we see the development of, uh, of human beings. So thank you for being able to be part of, I, mean, I would say of your life, but that's too big, but being part, being part of uh, your podcast and also getting to know, to know you. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. And I look forward to another conversation with you uh, on uh, Coaching Talks or maybe on Agile Ant. So that was all for today and thank you very much for being a loyal listener. Let us know if there is any topic you would like us to cover down in the space for comments. Have a great rest of the week. Goodbye.